This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Oh, this is Rog, and if you're listening to this, let's just say one thing. We're alive! Oh, and we're not just alive, but we're back with a pod special. Because while global sports is reeling with the coronavirus, oh, US soccer, well played, has managed to conjure an additional crisis all of its own making. This whole story, fairly depressing. It's part footballing story, part legal procedural. Think Megan Rapino meets Ali McBeal. And I want to relive this with someone who follows the case day in, day out. Because if we weren't all holed up in our own apartments right now, this will be a massive, massive news story. So to help understand it deeper, it's a true delight to welcome to the pod a journalist and human wonder, author of the brilliant <laughs> book, The National Team, the inside story of the women who changed soccer. They didn't change it enough so far, but there'll be additional chapters written. It's a magnificent book, even though I blurbed it on the back. Welcome to the pod. It's Caitlin Murray. Hi, Raj. How are you doing? Oh, Caitlin, I am so happy to speak to you. You are in Portland, Oregon, an area of the country that was first hard hit by the coronavirus. How are you holding up, Caitlin Murray? Well, I haven't left my apartment in 15 days. I was sick, so I stayed home, which is what you're supposed to do. And then as soon as I got better, we were told not to go outside to practice social distancing. So that's what I have been doing. You know, if anyone has recommendations for how to pass the time, I'm really reaching that point where I might need them. Yeah, there's nowhere to go. Everything's closed. You know, stores, bars, restaurants, even Powell's bookstore is closed. So I have nowhere to go. I've got all the time in the world to talk to you. So thank you for breaking up the monotony of my day. (laughs) Oh, 15 days in an apartment. You are living my dream life. We are going to relive together a (laughs) critical story. We're going to talk about the U.S. women's fight for equality as a TikTok. Pretend I'm Mike Barbaro and you are Maggie Haberman. But Maggie Haberman, there's not access journalizing. Let's go back to the beginning. U.S. soccer and the U.S. women's union are in a protracted court battle. Remind us simply of the stakes. The women say that U.S. soccer has been discriminating against them for years. Uh, It's not just pay. Pay is a huge part of it. And the number that we've seen recently floated around is $66 million dollars. That's what the players are seeking in back pay because they say that U.S. soccer hasn't paid them fairly. But it's other things. It's non-financial things. It's hotel accommodations, plane surfaces. I mean, this is a fight. You know, we'll get into it. But the groundwork has been laid for years for this fight. So this is sort of the next step in the women demanding better treatment and really sort of pushing U.S. soccer, which is what they have always had to do. And U.S. soccer are saying that the players have a union that negotiated the terms of pay. The women are now contending they're unlawfully low compared to the U.S. men. Right. But the U.S. soccer are saying that it's a women's union's fault for negotiating those terms. And if they don't like it, they should blame their union and not management, U.S. soccer. Yeah, I think that's one of, I I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I mean, that sounds pretty logical for U.S. soccer to say 
look, you had an opportunity to negotiate with us. This is the contract you came up with. You seemed pretty happy with it. But what the women say, and you know, something that came up when I was working on my book where we talk a lot about the CBA negotiations, is that the players asked for certain things that U.S. soccer rejected outright. So there was nowhere to go in negotiations for certain things. And the women have said that, yes, we negotiated a CBA, but it was the best we could get. And another thing that they've said repeatedly is you cannot collectively bargain away your rights, your civil rights as an individual. So that's sort of you know, where this lawsuit takes us, is that they say they have a CBA, but that doesn't mean that they haven't been discriminated against. The current meltdown was triggered by court filings early March. U.S. soccer, through its attorneys, the law firm Seaforth and Shaw, filed a series of legal documents in Los Angeles federal court, among them a memorandum, a fairly heinous memorandum, attempting to debunk the players' claim that U.S. soccer has violated the Equal Pay Act and Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to make it illegal for employers to discriminate against employees' pay, in this case on the basis of gender. I mean, the content of some of U.S. soccer's arguments, which have now been read high and wide, it was so shockingly offensive, Caitlin. We are talking Vanessa Hudgens-level stupidity. Can you remind us of this moment of folly and darkness? What do they say? Yeah, so... U.S. Soccer's legal strategy has been the same for months. They they have a lot of different arguments, but one of them was they were arguing that the women were not performing equal work to the men. And that already sounds like we're on shaky ground, sounds a little misogynistic, but it was this most recent filing which came... I mean, this has all happened so quickly. I mean, was it a week ago at this point? Um <laughs> This filing a week ago, it didn't just double down on this argument. It sort of took it to a new level with the language that it used. It said that the women are inherently inferior to men, basically. It said the women have less ability because ability is defined by physical attributes such as speed and strength. And playing for a men's team requires, quote, a higher level of skill. And they actually said in the filing, it says, this is not a quote, sexist stereotype. It's indisputable science. And I don't know about you, Raj, but when I hear someone say, I'm not being sexist, but they're probably being sexist. So they sort of knew they were right up uh, on the edge of saying something really misogynistic and have crossed over into that zone, but they still went ahead and did it anyway. Yeah, I normally, when I'm going to say something really offensive to someone, I always say, I don't mean to be offensive, but... Oh, <laughs> right. and then, you gotta, you got to warn people before you drop the bomb. And yeah, that's what they did. Dave always ducks when that comes out of my mouth. The memorandum also added that the job of men's national team players carries, quote, more responsibility than the job of a women's national team player. Essentially, this memorandum tried to claim the women occupy inferior jobs in equivalent occupations for wage comparison to those held by the men. You wrote in an article at the time, Caitlin, that U.S. soccer tried to justify paying women less based on the same misogyny spewed by Twitter trolls to demean female athletes every day. U.S. soccer has good arguments that they can make. I mean, we just talked about the fact that, you know, the union negotiated for it. That's, that's one argument that U.S. soccer can make. 
they can, you know, try to argue that the U.S. men's national team and the U.S. women's national team are separate entities. I think that's a little tough when they've tried so hard to, you know, ram this motto down down everyone's throat, one nation, one team. I guess what they really <laughs> meant was one nation, two teams. But, you know, that's an argument they can make. Um, FIFA prize money is another thing. But they chose the nuclear option. They chose scorched earth. They decided, let's just say that women are inferior to men. Let's belittle and demean female athletes everywhere. They didn't really need to make this argument, and yet they did. I, I'm not sure who thought that was a good idea, but here we are. The news breaks on a Monday while the U.S. are in the midst, on the field, of winning the awfully named She Believes Cup. By Wednesday, they came out for their warm-ups against Japan, and this feels like months ago, wearing their training tops inside out. A quite brilliant protest. It both threw shade on U.S. soccer by removing their emblem and just highlighting the stars, the World Cups they've won. And it also threw a veiled threat on sponsor Nike that they wouldn't always be represented by this team. It was brilliant. Yeah, I think it was a really powerful image when they did the the um, pregame lineup photo. It was every single player together with these sort of like very serious, grave scowls on their faces. They were not smiling. They were sending a very clear message. And it was funny, after they did this, they wore the, the training shirts inside out, so you could only see the outline of the crest and the four stars. I started to notice all of the people like responding to my tweets or all of my notifications very quickly all became like a photoshopped version of that crest, the outline and the stars. So the fans immediately took that and started running with it. Um, the U.S. women's national team and one of their partners, Breaking Tees, put out a T-shirt of that design, and I think that was their best uh, single day of sales for that company, Breaking Tees. So it really sort of caught like wildfire, and that was sort of the point where – I mean, sponsors had already started speaking out, but it was the sort of thing where, like, this was snowballing. And I think that's what prompted Carlos Cordero to then, during that game, release an apology that, quite frankly, just wasn't enough. Yeah, you, you mentioned Carlos Cordero, U.S. soccer president, suddenly in the firing line. Remind us who he is. You know, he'd been on that U.S. soccer board almost as a lurker. None of us were talking about him before he stood for president. <laughs> But when I think about him, I think Carlos Cadero, not really a soccer guy. No, not a soccer guy. And I think people do think that he is someone who is sort of entrenched in U.S. soccer. And when Sunil Gulati, the former president of U.S. soccer, when he left because the U.S. men's national team failed to qualify for the World Cup, Carlos Cordero was not sort of the establishment status quo guy. He sort of ran against the wishes of Sunil Gulati. He didn't have a lot of support at first, that he sort of had to get that after a couple rounds of voting in the U.S. soccer presidential election. But he he was a vice president who wasn't really out there doing anything. Like you said, we didn't know who he was, really. Um, he's a former Goldman Sachs executive. He is not a soccer guy, and he's made that very clear 
since he took over as president, he's really deferred soccer decisions to other people. And he talked a lot about, you know, letting soccer people make soccer decisions. It was sort of this course correction because the former president of U.S. soccer, Sunil Gulati was sort of unilaterally making a lot of decisions. <laughs> and Carlos Cordero wanted to change that. But I think what we've seen is U.S. soccer has not changed enough in the time that Carlos Cordero became president. And I think maybe he was deferring to the people who have been entrenched in U.S. soccer for far too long. I will say, I love the idea of Carlos Cordero as a lurker, but we've got to remember <laughs> not to get too inside the bubble, but the key constituency who voted him in in a fiercely contested election. Who was it? It was the Athletes' Council. And this is what I keep reminding myself about. It was the group of current and former U.S. men's and women's internationals who were meant to represent the interest of the players in the first place, who were the swing vote, the kingmakers, the queenmakers. Stu Holden back then, looking back at my notes, and Carlos Bocanegra were the council's lead spokespeople. And they said at the time, Carlos Cadero was a candidate we can unify behind. What I'm struck by is that the athletes came in and supported him in a fiercely contested election. Were they wrong? Did they know what they were doing? Were they let down ultimately? What, what, what happened inside their decision-making process at the time and how did it go so badly wrong? Well, I think that Carlos Cordero, during the campaign for the presidential election, he said a lot of the right things. I mean, he said things about the women deserving equal pay and how he was going to fix this problem and it was going to be addressed. I mean, things that he said during his campaign are now being used in the lawsuit as part of the depositions for the U.S. Women's National Team because he essentially admitted that the women had not been treated equally. In the court filings that came out, there's a very interesting email from former U.S. soccer president Sunil Gulati who was really angry at what Carlos Cordero was saying during the campaign. And he said it was irresponsible for Carlos Cordero to be out there saying that U.S. soccer wasn't treating the women equally. So I think in terms of what Cordero promised, there was a reason why he got the support of the athletes. He just hasn't delivered on those promises, unfortunately. We get the news leaking in U.S. soccer's filing. It's undisputed that the job of men's national team player requires materially more strength and speed than the job of women's national team player. I want to break the responses down from the different constituencies in the football world. What was the response, first of all, from the players? They were having to win games on the field. I will say after the Japan game, Megan Rapinoe's words post-game, they made me tear up. Um, you know, we have, we have sort of felt that those are some of the undercurrent feelings um, that they've had for a long time. But to, to see that as the argument, as, as sort of blatant misogyny and sexism, as the argument against us um, is really disappointing. But I just want to say it's all false to every girl out there, to every boy out there who watches this team, who wants to be on this team or just wants to live their dream out. Uh, you are not lesser just because you are a girl. You are not better just because you're a boy. We are all created equal and should all have the equal opportunity to go out and pursue our dreams. And for us, that means playing on the soccer field. So everything that was in that deposition um, of what they said in the argument is just not true. Don't ever believe that. What did you hear from the player's side? Well, the very first thing I heard was the spokeswoman for the players, Molly Levinson. She's sort of the person who 
is speaking on behalf of the players throughout these legal proceedings because usually the players aren't directly responding to all the back and forth that's going on. And she had a great response. Uh, She said that U.S. soccer's arguments belonged in the Paleolithic era, and it sounds as if it had been made by a caveman. So (laughs) that was pretty funny. But I think Megan Rapinoe really sort of crystallized this whole discussion, this whole lawsuit, when she said that, you know, the players had felt for a long time that sexism was behind the way they were being treated by U.S. soccer, and essentially, this this filing proved it. It's pretty interesting that U.S. Soccer is defending itself against accusations that it was sexist, and it defended itself in the most sexist way possible. Yeah, I mean, that didn't move U.S. Soccer, what Megan Rapino had to say. Their heart was hard. But then the sponsors' backlash kicked in. I mean, the reputational damage for your Visas, your Volkswagens, your Coca-Colas, your Deloitte's. But it's impossible for the brands to defend. And U.S. soccer has to listen to that because the threat of sponsors invoking moral clauses would mean U.S. soccer loses millions of dollars in projected revenues. That was a game changer. Yeah, I mean, as soon as money gets involved, people start to pay attention. And Coca-Cola was first. They came out and said it was, quote, unacceptable and offensive. And then the other sponsors just started pouring in with their own statements. Deloitte said it was deeply offended. You know, Visa and Budweiser both said that U.S. soccer's position doesn't align with their values. It's not one that they share. The strongest one was Volkswagen that came out and said it was disgusted by the positions that U.S. soccer had taken and they are unacceptable. And a number of sponsors vowed to reach out directly to U.S. soccer and express their concern. When you look at these brands, I think a lot of them are attaching themselves to U.S. soccer because of the U.S. women's national team. No offense to the U.S. men's national team, but why would anyone be concerned about attaching themselves to that team right now? I mean, since 2018, it's been sort of, um, you know, hard to be excited about the U.S. men's national team. The players on the U.S. women's national team represent something larger than sports. They They are sort of these figureheads and these symbols for female empowerment and, you know, progressive values and a a changing landscape and sort of being able to push the status quo. That's what this team is about. It's in their DNA. They win on the field. They also win off the field with everything that they've taken on. And I mean, U.S. Soccer, you know, they don't split out their sponsorships. We don't, you know, (laughs) this is something that comes up in the lawsuit. We don't really know how much sponsorship money is directly attributed to the U.S. Women's National Team versus the U.S. Men's National Team. But I would wager a guess that these sponsors are really interested in the U.S. women's national team. So for U.S. soccer to take this position where it is in this ugly fight that is just devolving into something pretty unsavory, you have to be able to see why sponsors would be upset about that. Are you trying to tell me, Caitlin, that Volkswagen aren't flinging all this money at U.S. soccer solely so they can get the image of Jossie Zardes driving a Jetta? Because this is breaking news. But it it wasn't just the players speaking out. It wasn't just the brands speaking out. Then the board started to speak out about what was going on. First up, Cindy Parlo-Cohn, then vice president of U.S. soccer, quickly followed by MLS commissioner Don Garber, who's also on U.S. soccer's board of directors. 
Booth were quick to leap in, distanced themselves completely from the memorandum. Garber said, the memorandum is offensive and, quote, unacceptable. I did not understand this moment. I've got to be honest. They are both on U.S. soccer's board. Mm-hmm. How, how could they not know? A U.S. soccer filing briefings on behalf of their board and not empowering them to fulfill their legal responsibility as board members. Yeah, I think that sort of gets to a larger issue that this situation has shed a light on, which is the weird governance structure of U.S. soccer that makes no sense. I mean, U.S. soccer is still run like a mom and pop organization. That it is not because the board positions are paid zero dollars. They are volunteer positions. Carlos Cordero, president of U.S. Soccer, also paid zero dollars. It's a volunteer position. The board members have indicated that they didn't know that this was the legal strategy. Carlos Cordero has come out and said that he didn't have a chance to review this. And it's easy to just think that these people are lying because they don't want to take responsibility. But honestly, I'm not sure that they actually read any of this. I mean, the filing where these very sexist arguments were buried in, it was 2,600 pages. And these are volunteer positions. I went to a board meeting, a U.S. soccer board meeting in December, and I did not get the sense that these board members were involved in the the day-to-day and were regularly, you know, kept in the loop on what U.S. soccer was doing. There's a larger question about the way U.S. soccer is run, and they really need to address that because the president of U.S. soccer is an unpaid position. He's essentially working full-time. I mean, Carlos Cordero was so involved, and for it to be a job that's unpaid, of course you have a guy who's a former Goldman Sachs executive because you have to be independently wealthy to do this job. It, it's just it's not attracting great candidates for this role. So there's a whole issue as far as the way U.S. soccer is structured and run that is sort of a side issue, but it's an issue that needs to be addressed. 2,600 pages. The only book I've read that is that, is that long is the first volume of Bruce Arena's autobiography. But you mentioned the U.S. Women's Players Union. They do have a spokesperson, Molly Levinson. Full disclosure, I know Molly personally. She was a classmate with my wife at Wellesley. Go blue. And I have to say, she handled last week. It was like, and I tweeted this, like watching Khaleesi burn down the coals and emerge unscathed from the fire. U.S. soccer had, in that moment, just exposed themselves publicly awfully and Molly delivered a ruthless withering broadside it was like watching a two-footed tackle from Julie Ertz fly in she said while it's gratifying there's been such a deafening outcry against U.S. soccer's blatant misogyny the sexist culture and policies overseen by Carlos Cadero have been approved for years by the board of directors at U.S. soccer this institution must change she was taking a small point and saying no 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 it is so much bigger than even what we see. The court filing is tip of the iceberg. Carlos Cordero resigned. That's good, I guess. That's, you know, that's what people are calling for. But that doesn't really fix anything. I mean, U.S. soccer is so entrenched in this idea that, well, this is how we've always done things. So this is how we're going to continue to do things. And, you know, I I talk a lot in my book about U.S. soccer really needing to be pushed to change things. And 
you know, when I was working on my book, I sort of quickly realized that the story of the U.S. women's national team is not a story of just, you know, triumph on the field and games and that sort of thing. It was a story about being in boardrooms and fighting with U.S. soccer. You know, there's a scene in my book where Julie Foudy and Mia Hamm are sitting at a table with Bob Consiglia, the former president of U.S. soccer, and they're telling him off to his face and telling him that they're never going to play soccer ever again because of the way U.S. soccer treats them. So this is a very long-standing issue. I think it's entrenched in the way that the Federation approaches things and the way that the Federation views things. And the people at the Federation have been there for so long. I don't think there's been a lot of introspection about why are we doing the things the way we're doing them. They just they sort of just keep plodding along. And by the way, when you talk about that story with the great Julie Foudy and Mia Hamm, they were fighting to get more than $10 a day stipends. But you play crappy defense against this U.S. women's team. On the field, they'll blast 13 goals against you. And in this moment, U.S. soccer you. This was the case off the field. The U.S. soccer board was suddenly in the same position, essentially, as Thailand in the Women's World Cup. So last <laughs> Thursday night, Carlos Cadero resigns, saying, my one and only mission has always been to do what's best for our federation. I mean, to me, his great achievement in my mind was that he secured my dream of having the game I love, soccer, on the lips of every American, even those who don't like the sport, and he made it come true but for possibly the worst of reasons, as this awful story was absolutely everywhere. We're going to talk about the immediate ramifications, but I've got to ask you, how much of all of this was actually solely Carlos Cadero's fault? Honestly, I don't know if any of it was really his fault, because like I said, it's an unpaid volunteer position. I, I do think that any suggestion that he didn't know the legal strategy... Or, you know, that wasn't clear. I think that's false. I think everyone has known for months that U.S. soccer, one of the things they were going to argue was that the women are not performing equal work to the men. And, you know, you look at the player depositions, you know, Carly Lloyd was asked months ago about whether the women can compete against teenage boys, whether the women could win in a game against the German senior men's national team. This was the strategy. So I'm sure Carlos Cordero knew that. I'm sure a lot of people at the Federation knew that. But in terms of this being Carlos Cordero's responsibility or his doing, I I have strong doubts about that. I mean, there are people who are still at U.S. soccer, even though Cordero is gone, he has resigned, there are people who still work in U.S. soccer house who devise the strategy or were on board with it. I mean, U.S. soccer has an in-house legal counsel, Lydia Walke, who I think was, you know, supportive of this, knew about it, uh, green-lighted it. So there are a lot of people there who were responsible. I don't really know to what extent Carlos Cordero was directly responsible. I think he, you know, just said, okay, that sounds good. I don't know if he really knew the finer details of the argument. Oh, when I used to live in D.C., one of my favorite restaurants was called House of Beef. I do love that American tradition of just naming buildings after the most basic thing that's related to. And the fact that we have a soccer house a whole house, a whole building made out of soccer. It fills me with total joy. But U.S. soccer's <laughs> bylaws have it. That in the case of resignation, the vice president steps up to finish off the term. As such, 
rise up Cindy Parlo Cohn, who'd been re-elected last month as US Soccer's vice president. She was the first in line to succeed Cadero. We should applaud. She is the first woman to oversee the 107-year-old organization. As a player, many of you won't have seen her, but she was a 5-4-11 goal-scoring warrior, a player who posted 75 goals in 158 glory-filled US appearances, three NCAA titles, two Olympic gold medals, a World Cup as a 1999er. But can you give us a sense of Cindy Parlo Cohn as a soccer bureaucrat? Well, that's a great question. I don't I don't know if we know that much about Cindy Parlo Cohn, the soccer bureaucrat. We know a lot about her as a player. She was the coach of the Portland Thorns for one year, and then she stepped down. I think maybe there's more to that story. I think the Thorns kind of wanted to get a new coach. I mean, she's she's been on the board. From what I have heard, Carlos Cordero really wanted a female vice president. He really supported her candidacy and wanted her to be on the board. But traditionally, I actually don't think the VP at U.S. Soccer has done very much. There's a reason why none of us really knew anything about Carlos Cordero when he ran for election. When I was working on my book, I spoke to other previous VPs, and I clearly got the sense that they were not involved in any sort of decision-making or day-to-day. It really didn't know what was going on. So I don't, I, I don't know how much she's been involved in things. And that's sort of the interesting question is, what sort of president is she going to be? This is not the position she signed up for. She signed up for something that was very part-time, again, also unpaid. She has a job as the director for North Carolina FC's youth system. She has a kid. Like, she's got other stuff going on in her life. This is not the job that she signed up for. Another lurker. I do love a board full of lurkers. (laughs) But let me ask you the big question everyone is wondering right now. Is Cindy Paulo Cohn in some way related to the Burhalter family? Is she a cousin (laughs) by marriage? Is there any connection at all? (laughs) I I am not aware of it. It would be a big change of tradition to have a non-Burhalter calling the shots there. But yeah, not, not as far as I know. So the battle between U.S. soccer and the U.S. women, it was expected to head to trial May 5th. The trial, I think, speaking of both parties six, seven months ago, neither really wanted. But things had just gotten so rutted. Just so angry from both sides uh, in the run-up through January and February. The trial was becoming a real possibility. But how do these sudden changes at U.S. soccer alter the likely trajectory of the team's pay equity lawsuit now? Well, I think that the pressure is now on U.S. soccer to get this dealt with as quickly as possible and settle and, you know, write a check and make this go away. Because... The sense I got before all of this stuff happened was that U.S. soccer was really anxious to try to sit down and figure out a settlement. I mean, before all of this happened, uh, Carlos Cordero issued this letter where he said that, you know, U.S. soccer had offered the women the same that the men are paid. He made this really public showing about how U.S. soccer is trying to sit down and get a deal done. And just based on conversations I've had with people on both sides, I did get the sense that U.S. soccer was anxious to sort of get this figured out. Now at this point, U.S. soccer has clearly reached diminishing returns. It's hurting them more than it's helping them to try to defend against this lawsuit. They really have to get this settled. And I think that in terms of the payout that the women can get, 
that has probably gone up. I think they're in a much better position to get get leverage. And now that Cindy Parlocone is in there, she is a former player on the U.S. women's national team. She has seen some of the terrible treatment and the double standards that have been applied to the women over the years. She has lived it. So even though she you know, was, I think, recruited by Carlos Scudero to be on the board, and she was sitting on the board, and, you know, she, she's been on the other side. I think there's going to be an element of empathy that maybe wasn't there before. She has vowed in her public statements that she's going to repair this relationship. She's going to get this figured out. The goal is to get a deal done. And I would think it happens before it has to go to trial. And, you know, we'll see what happens with the trial anyway, with the coronavirus stuff probably will be pushed back. That's going to give everyone even more time to figure out a way to settle without having to go to trial. So Caitlin Murray, where are you now in terms of the assumption between everything is going to change now or we should brace ourselves? Let's be realistic. There's going to be more of the same. Well, U.S. soccer has resisted change for so long that it's sort of easy to expect uh, that there won't be very much change. But I mean, look, they are going to get a new CEO at some point. Hopefully they can find someone to take the job. Uh, They're going to have new people making decisions. I think that what Heather O'Reilly said is right. U.S. soccer needs to go through a lengthy reorganization process and... I'm not sure how long that will take. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure to the extent that everyone is on board with it, but that's clearly what needs to happen. If they think that, you know, just having Cindy Parlocone in there is going to fix everything, it's not. So I wouldn't say that I'm super optimistic, but it's still very early. We haven't really gotten a sense of what kind of president that Cindy Parlocone is going to be. I mean, you wrote something beautiful. You wrote, all of this is rooted in the Federation's attitude that the women ought to be thankful for whatever they get. That's nothing new. It goes all the way back to the 80s and the 1990s. Yeah, I mean, the women at at some point were being paid $10 per day, and the men's team was being paid 25 The women were taking uh, hotel shuttle vans to their games, and the men have luxury bus liners so this is something that um the women have sort of lived for years at this point and I think some people thought that when this lawsuit came out that it sort of came out of the blue that it was unexpected when in in reality the U.S. women's national team has behind the scenes been having fights like this with U.S. soccer for years. It's just sort of in their DNA. Uh, the former president of U.S. soccer, Bob Consiglia, told me that the players, they had a fighting mentality. They fought on the field and they carried that off the field. They constantly got into fights with the Federation. And I think that's sort of instruction, instructive and it's important context when we think about these things. It's not just you know, about playing on artificial turf or grass, which is something that comes up in the lawsuit. It's not just about $66 million in back pay, which has come up in this lawsuit. It's about years and years of double standards and treatment where U.S. soccer said, you're lucky that you get to play soccer. You should just be happy with what you got. Oh, I mean, the thing that for me is so sad in terms of all of this is that 
football in America, we've always joked, Caitlin, for, on this show that football in America's sport of the future, but it, it has always been a culture that's believed itself to be more progressive, more pathfinding, more pioneering, both in terms of other sports in the US and also for other women's soccer federations around the world. And all of this has given us all pause. So I've got to ask you, in terms of wider change, what has to happen for serious, positive change to occur at U.S. soccer? Yeah, I think if there were an easy answer, maybe U.S. soccer would do it, although I'm not sure that's a guarantee. But I think it's it's a complicated question. I personally think that there needs to be a rebuild because, you know, U.S. soccer started as this little mom and pop organization in Colorado Springs. The U.S. women's national team sort of started by accident. It wasn't like anyone thought, hey, we need a U.S. women's national team. The U.S. was invited to play in this tournament in Italy in 1985. So they just sort of whipped a team together, found some leftover men's jerseys in a warehouse, and sent them to go play in this game. So I think that U.S. soccer hasn't really evolved with the times. Everything has just sort of happened by happenstance, and they've just sort of rolled with it. But they've never really looked at, like, how can we evolve with how much the game has grown? U.S. soccer is a huge organization now. They have hundreds of full-time and part-time staff across the country, but it still sort of feels like the mom-and-pop organization that it was, you know, back in the 80s and 90s when – The U.S. women's national team was having to constantly needle the federation and threaten to go on strike and boycott games and do things like that. I mean, at one point, the women's national team got the U.S. Olympic Committee involved and reported U.S. soccer to the USOC. So U.S. soccer (laughs) needs to sort of have some self-reflection and evolve past what it's been, which I don't think they have done yet to date. It should be said, there is incredible joy. The women, under the management of new head coach Vlatko Andonovsky, are playing some of their best football I've seen. And God bless you, Kristen Press and Lindsay Horan. God bless you also, Caitlin Murray. And by God, I obviously, I mean Becky Sauerbrun. You are amazing. We will have, I hope, real football NWSL football to talk about again very soon but until then your book the national team the inside story of women who've changed soccer by you Caitlin Murray at Caitlin Murr I think my blurb on the back of that book was something like the definitive telling of the dreams elite skills and enormous sacrifices that have been made to bring peerless success on the field and the fight for equality off it. Caitlin, I've got to say, I'm so grateful to you for walking us through this. And I do look forward to raising a pint with you in person Oh, when this is all over. You're the Lindsay Harana writers. Stay healthy. <laughs> stay strong, Caitlin Murray. Keep on trucking. Encourage. All right, thanks, Raj. Thanks for having me.